as I progress in my career, taking over all of GNA, not just HR, and then moving on to operations after that. But always keeping that in the back of my mind that when we make decisions as a whole, as a company, we also have to remember that we're taking care of the employee base as well. In the world of business finance, things change fast. Welcome to the Leaders of Modern Finance, a show where today's finance innovators discuss what the future holds. Learn from experts in the field as they explore emerging finance trends, insights, and more. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the leading account payable automation platform. With Stamply, collaborate easily and efficiently with invoice approvers, vendors, and anyone involved with purchases. This helps you quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com. Greetings, everyone. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders of Modern Finance. My name is Ben Murray, and I'd like to welcome Sarah Wilson, VP of Global Finance and Strategy at TradeShift. Great to have you here, Sarah. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Excited to chat with you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and TradeShift. Sure, yeah. So I've been in FP&A for probably 18 years now working in FP&A, various different industries and companies over the last few years. In the last year, I've been working at TradeShift as their VP of Global Finance and Strategy. And uh, TradeShift has been in business for just over 10 years, building a global network that connects both buyers and sellers on the same platform. We specialize in B2B marketplaces, payments, and enterprise automation. And we just completed a Series E round in December, which is bringing us closer to that goal of an IPO. So tell us a little bit about TradeShift and the teams that you oversee, whether that's FP&A, accounting, legal tax, and so forth, and then a little bit about your team size. Yeah, sure. The current FP&A team is functioning in a hybrid model with components of a centralized model and a decentralized model, meaning we have business partners as well as a corporate FP&A team. And so that's our core FP&A area. We also have procurement on my team, which I'm really enjoying having. That's the first time I've had procurement roll up under me. But from an expense management perspective, it's really great being able to drive the strategy on that piece. I also have revenue strategy and also deal desk. So deal desk is a smaller team that reviews all of the deals that come through when they're being crafted and built out from bottoms up, right? So the revenue analytics team and revenue strategy folks, they can take a look at that um, as it's coming in and they're able to really forecast revenue at a pretty good rate, pretty accurate. Yeah, interesting. So deal desk, that's the first time I've heard of that. So would that be like deals that you're signing with customers? Yes. Okay. And then almost like a sales operations role where contract management, review the contracts, terms and conditions, if there's any negotiation, then they get signed. So something like that. Yeah. So essentially my team takes it towards the end of the process, makes sure that not only do we have the resources to build out what they're expecting to see in this deal, but that that it's crafted in a way that is revenue driving for the business. It's all sales driven. Sometimes you can bump up against profitability on that deal. These deals are really complex and they have a long tail on them. So it takes a while to actually craft out the right deal. And so having that financial lens on it 
has really helped us tighten up the process and just make sure that each deal is in alignment with where we need to be. Okay, so interesting because of the complexity and the long tail, meaning maybe the you know multi-year contracts that yes. they just always have to have that finance review and finance stamp of approval. Then it sounds like yeah, that's right. Yep. So your team team structure, you got FPA procurement, revenue strategy, and deal desk. About sounds like you said fourteen employees. Give us a sense of scale for Trade Shift. You mentioned Series A raising two hundred million. So employee size, revenue size, so we can understand. All right, fourteen employees, and it's a thousand person firm. Uh, so how big is this Trade Shift? Yeah, we're sitting at about six hundred employees, and we have that based across probably eight to ten countries. Very um, spread out, very highly global company. A lot of our sales folks are within the geographic area that they need to sell in. Most of our business is in Europe. Um, okay. So, yeah. Okay. So, not just say North America, but now where are you located? I'm actually in Draper, Utah. Okay, in Utah. All right. But yeah. uh, a lot of sales out of Europe. Okay, interesting. <laughs> and do you have many headquarters in, in Europe or where is your headquarters? Um, our headquarters are in San Francisco, actually. Let's go. Okay. Yeah, I lived in the Bay Area for about eight years and then um, recently moved out to Utah a couple of years ago. So out here, was going to be working from here, but then with COVID, I never ended nope. up needing to work other than my house. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah. Interesting, because that's a question that does come up that I ask you later. But tell us, work from home work in the office, how does that work for your finance team? Yeah, for us, it works fine. I would say the only thing that is a little tricky is are the time zones, right? So I have probably half of my team is either in Bucharest, Romania. I have some folks in Germany and Sweden and New York City, middle of the country, California. So there's it. we're really spread out. That's really the only tricky bit because sometimes if it's 5 p.m. my time and I'm trying to finish something up, it's two in the morning for some of my analysts. I can't very well drag them out of bed to help me. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> so probably. knowing which resources I can pull on in, in at times of crisis or something has been a little tricky, but nothing that we haven't been able to really manage. So, and I feel like with finance, it's ideal with a business partner that you could be in the same place, right? And work directly with your business partners, but not 100% necessary. And especially now that we've had about two years under our belt, right? With this mm-hmm. working from home, I think people are really getting used to it. So yeah. Okay. So it sounds like your team about 14 are work from home just because it's such a distributed bottle and yeah, I all of us would have would be anyway most of us. Yeah, like, anyway. I, I only have one other employee in Utah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, makes sense. So with your team, I'm sure FPA involved with this board reporting. Always interesting to see or hear what finance leaders report to the board. So what what is the cadence with your board? You know, do you meet monthly, quarterly, both? And then what are those key numbers that must be reviewed in these board meetings? Yeah, so we meet quarterly, pretty much directly following the quarter. And our fiscal quarter is a little bit different than the calendar quarters. It's one month behind. And we primarily focus on revenue, trending, bookings, EBITDA, and ARR. 
A couple other things that we focus on are uh, net promoter scores from the customer base as well as employee net promoter scores. So we have a couple of surveys that we send out to the employee base and we just, as a leadership team, make sure to calibrate like, how things are going across the employee base. Okay, interesting. And, and I don't know in depth your business model, but you mentioned B2B marketplace. So maybe a subscription, but marketplace. I mean, are there, I live in the SaaS world. So are there other metrics that you guys look at, like customer retention, anything like that's applicable to, to your business model? Yeah, customer retention for sure. But because of our, the complexity of each deal, it's very different. So some of the trended regular metrics that you would look at in a SaaS business haven't really landed so well, like when we're looking at them. And so one of the bottom lines for us is, is really focusing on our margins. Gross margin is really important to us. And EBITDA right now is very important. Managing our expenses is very critical, especially after getting some funds in from a fundraising, just making sure that we're allocating those funds appropriately. It's really important. Oh, yeah, definitely with what we used to have $200 million in, in cash coming in the door. So yeah. yeah, a little bit of expense management there. So yeah. maybe that's a good segue to the next question, the tech stack and managing that spend. So in your department with procurement, FP&A, revenue strategy, deal desk, what solutions are you using in your tech stack? Yeah, from the accounting side, we're using NetSuite. And from the finance side, we use Adaptive Insights which is, I guess, powered and owned by Workday, which is cool because when we are able to get the integration together, I think we had gotten adaptive insights prior to getting Workday. But once you can get those two connected, it's a really powerful tool. But so we use adaptive insights for all of our expense and, and forecasting for revenue as well. And then we use Workday as our HCM tool and then Salesforce as a CRM tool. Now, those two are add-ons to, I would say, a finance mm -hmm. structure, like, you know, Adaptive Insights really should be integrated with various things like Workday and Salesforce. And we're definitely working to enhance some of that. But right now, Workday, we're really using to forecast out compensation trends and mm -hmm. things like that. Okay. So interesting. Yeah. You're learning when you've integrated CRM to your accounting system. Wow. What a world of difference. So is that something you're still working on those integrations from your CRM, some from Salesforce, say into NetSuite? Then? Yeah. So what we want to do is have an end-to-end -end sales process that's within Salesforce that flows into our financial system. Right. So that's what the deal desk team is really working on right now. It's really automating that whole process. So there's not email approvals of things. There's a flow to it through Salesforce. And then when we get the outcome of that final deal, it's able to go into our adaptive insights and forecast out the revenue. Okay. And would you call it then like the quote to cash, the, the whole say revenue cycle from the deal and pushing into accounting, invoicing, rev rack, collecting cash and so on? Yeah, absolutely. For HCM, for Workday, there's, of course, all of the different layers of personnel cost, right, that comes through. And if you're able to do payroll through Workday and then get it all into Adaptive Insights, it makes that largest line of your P&L so much easier to forecast, right? Yeah, yeah. All the movement, headcount, attrition, new hires, changing departments, always a lot of time spent there. Yeah, because those yeah. are everyday changes, right? And they're material. 
Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. When you have 600 employees probably growing, I'm guessing, like you said, yeah. daily changes. Hard to stay on top of unless you have a yeah, nice integration like that. Right. So interesting about your tech stack, anything else you want to share there? Or is that pretty much the... the I mean, at this stage, yeah, this is where we're working with. I mean, we do model a lot of things, obviously, in Excel. Mm -hmm. Of course. So, yeah. Yeah, Excel always our friend or spreadsheets. Yeah. Interesting. So let's talk about your career path. Really interesting. It sounds like a balance looking at your profile and your experience, heavy FP&A experience. So that balance between that analytical side, and then you've also had... I guess we could call this people-centric HR perspective and experience and benefits, compensation. So tell us a little bit more about your career and, and how that evolved and how you got into understanding that that balance between analysis and then the people side mm-hmm. uh, in, in your finance career, which a lot of times we don't get exposed to in finance. Maybe we know benefits and all that stuff, but we don't say have like this, uh, not embedded with HR, for example. Right. Yeah. And it's funny, I've yet to meet a finance person who has a similar background, to be honest. (laughs) So, but I started my career in New York City. I was working for Time Warner and then onto NBC Universal, where I was on a team focused primarily on planning the financial outcomes of our health and welfare plans, retirement plans, executive compensation, headcount growth, stuff like that. So started my career really closely partnering with HR leaders. And that background gave me the foundational skill set to join Lending Club in 2015. And they were a, it's a fintech company. Apparently they, we said that we were the the first fintech company. Early fintech, yeah. Pioneers, yeah. <laughs> and at that time they'd just gone public and were in hyper growth mode looking to hire about 800 people that year. And they were looking for someone to partner with the chief people officer and build out a robust like headcount personnel expense model so they could force forecast out, like I said, one of the largest movers on the P&L. And at the time too, really focused on, on EBITDA. So that was like the number to constantly watch. So in that role, I focused heavily on all things HR analytics, really. So from market analysis, executive compensation, headcount growth, recruiting strategies around that. How do we get there? How much are we going to spend in recruiting? People analytics, bonus matrix models, you name it, right? So, and one of, I would say one of the unexpected things that came from that experience was that I was so focused on driving effective strategies that were centered up around that employee base. It gave me just an innate passion for wanting to empower and support employees and making sure that what we were doing as a company was also serving the employee base as well. Right. So I took that into more leadership role as I progressed in my career, taking over all of GNA, not just HR, and then moving on to operations after that. But always keeping that in the back of my mind that when we make decisions as a whole, as a company, we also have to remember that we're at, we're taking care of the employee base as well. Yeah, still, yeah, yeah, it's all about the people. I know, especially software companies, people, that's the big investment. So, uh, exactly. yeah, really interesting. And I definitely want to circle back to compensation a little bit. Yeah. Looking at your career progression, pretty extensive experience in analytics and tons mm-hmm. of FP&A, tons of FP&A roles. So mm-hmm. I'd like to hear 
a little bit about your thoughts on translating data into a story. And I'm sure exactly what I'm talking about. One of the hardest roles with an FP&A is distilling that data and then communicating that to your board, to investors, potential investors, to department leaders who you're supporting. And your model where you've got corporate FP&A, and the same thing when I was in an airline, corporate FP&A and then divisional FP&A that directly, you could say, embedded and supported department mm-hmm. leaders. So tell us a little bit, any keys to that translation of data into a story? Yeah. So, I mean, that for FP&A, that's the job, in my opinion. Being great at modeling is one thing, but I think that is, and that's really where we all start, is being able to model some big data sets, right? And pulling out some things here or there. But being able to pull out the relevant information and then craft that into like true meaning of the data and not also bore people to death in the process, I would say is the most critical part of being a great FP&A partner and, and manager. And in my opinion, I think exceptional FP&A talent is someone who has that great EQ where they can talk to just about anybody but also have that analytical horsepower, right? So they have the ability to take a look at the data from its base set and then pull out those small pieces that tell the story and also making it relevant to what's driving the business and also what's important to that business unit leader, maybe that they're partnering with, right? So making sure that they have the understanding of the broader story and where the company is going from a strategic perspective, and then pulling out those relevant pieces of the data, finding those trends and being able to bring it to life is, I said, like I said, I think it's the job. <laughs> yeah, really interesting. So you mentioned EQ. So I'm guessing like emotional intelligence. So yeah. being able to slice and dice the data, but also to adapt to the room, the questions, yeah. you know, the is it the board we're talking to, managers, executives, to be able to yeah. adapt, you know, for that and be able to tell the right story and not get off on a tangent? Because I found as analysts, I experienced myself and, and experienced bosses yeah. would bring you out of the weeds. It's like they'll seeing they can see the big picture, they can zoom down, see the details, but then they're zooming back out and having that balance, which I think is a progression for new FPNA analysts, where you get caught in the weeds and then yeah. you don't really back out to see what is this really telling me. Yeah. And uh, am I off track a bit because I just can't see the big picture? Absolutely. That's what is the so what of this, right? So at the end of the day, you put this whole model together. So what are we, what are we thinking about when we see this, right? And that's exactly right. You see that in career progression over time. And you try to pull people out of that. And then sometimes you'll see them naturally do it over time. And that's really exciting to see. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely a progression. It takes time working with the numbers to mm-hmm. progress, uh, pro- make progress in your FP&A career. Yeah. Uh, so I said we'd circle back to this area because I saw in one of the titles that you had, I thought was pretty unique, was director of, uh, I think, was it compensation analytics or compensation and analytics? Yeah, compensation and analytics. Yeah. Okay. I took a step out of finance and reported into the chief people officer and I was head of comp. Okay. So yeah. out of the finance track, which doesn't always happen, it's sometimes hard to move off the finance track, maybe in a bigger company, more opportunities, but tell us a little bit about that role. I assume with your finance background, it was a nice fit for that role, but what was the key goal for that for director of compensation and analytics? 
Yeah. So at Lending Club, they were looking for a head of compensation for a while. And because I had been partnering so closely with the chief people officer, she said, hey, well, what do you think if you did this, did this as head of comp? And, and I was like, yeah, I think I would love to do that. <laughs> it was definitely something that was exciting for me. And I knew that I wouldn't lose my FP&A chops at that point, right? I'd been 10 plus years in FP&A. So I decided to take it a year or so and, and I reported into her. And what I did in that year was I restructured the entire compensation architecture. So I did some bottoms up market analysis of where we wanted to be in the marketplace in terms of how we bring talent in where we need to be strategically, right, to bring in the right talent and to make sure that our offers are solid. And then also some areas of the business, you can flex in terms of market percentile, right? You don't need to be at the 90th percentile of the market in, say, operations or call centers, right? But you might need to flex into that for, say, engineering, right? So I was able to restructure the compensation architecture such that we had a strategy around where we position ourselves in the market based on the talent and and the need. And then the other component to that was creating a compensation philosophy. And I centered that around our employee, our company uh, values. So one of the values, for example, was do the right thing. Now, I centered our compensation philosophy around pay equity, like gender or demographic or cultural pay equity around do the right thing. So we had about six or seven different values, and I could align different components of our compensation philosophy into those values. So, and the values at Lending Club were actually really well spoken about, like we we talked about them just in the day to day or you would see them in a company all hands or something like that. So they were all pretty well known. So I was able to bring that philosophy to life through the values, which was really cool. So interesting. I mean, to have a, that position within the company, director of compensation analytics, I mean, how many employees were at the at Lending Club at that point in time when you were doing this? 1,800 maybe. 1,800? Okay. Maybe 2,000, yeah. So yeah. definitely pretty nice size employee base. You know, yeah, because I think definitely you see in smaller companies, this is an underserved area where the finance leader, the yeah. CFO is working with the director, VP of HR, looking mm-hmm. at market comp, what are candidates wanting? What are, do we have a pay scale internally? Maybe we don't even have that graded pay scale when it's just, you just don't have enough time or budget to really focus on that. But it seems yeah. like in large organizations where you have thousands of employees, that seems like the competitive advantage if you're just focused on this, what's going on in the market, are pay yeah. grades in the right spot for each role, for each title, for each department, mm-hmm. and constantly assessing that, it seems like you guys would be, that that gives you an advantage in recruiting them. It's definitely, it was a definitely like a unique situation. And I think it worked out really well because not only was I focused on the architecture and building out the right you know, strategy for that, but I was also focused on our financials, right? So when I built it out, I was able to already model out the outcome, the financial impact to the architecture change for the FP&A team, right? So generally that would never happen. (laughs) Yeah, they probably appreciated that. Yeah, otherwise that'd be a big exercise, it sounds like. Yeah. 
And of course, when I made those changes, I had that in my mind, right? I had a, I wasn't going to blow up the entire year budget because of a change in architecture. I had that in the back of my mind whenever I was making changes. Yeah. Forecasting the impact. Was it, do you need to tweak it a bit or did you go too far? Yeah. So now, so that was a past title, really interesting. A couple thousand employees where you did need that and it was an advantage. And now your title, I noticed VP of Global Finance and Strategy. So I'm just mm-hmm. curious that and strategy, which you don't, I think, at least for me, I don't see a lot. So was that explicitly put there for a reason? Because sometimes, right, in finance roles, it's just like, hey, we've got to be strategic. But is that a key mandate within your role at, at Trade Shift? I think it's a combination of the size of the company and my background that I'm able to flex into both. But yeah, I focus a lot on org strategy, business development, and I work with the senior leaders on a lot of operational strategy. But I also focus on the FP&A side and making sure that our budget planning is on on you know, point and that we're hitting our targets. So I think it's a combination of those two is company need and my background. But yeah, the strategy component, now that I have flexed into both of those things, I can see how well it really does bring to life what you're trying to build out in the budget. You can't really have a great budget without having the sound understanding of the company strategy. It's just not really, they so go hand in hand, in my opinion, that it just makes it flow really well. Yeah, on the same page here, I feel like if you don't understand the operations of your company, the departments, the business units, there's no way you're going to be able to forecast that business or budget if you don't understand the operations, right? Because that's part of FP&A is to distilling what's happening operationally and then into the forecast budget because all those decisions, actions eventually end up in our financial statements, right? The the numeric form of all those decisions and actions. So you mentioned something about a business partner model in part of your SA FP&A strategy. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So one of the things that I really focus on and I I think are super important to the successful nature of an FP&A team is being able to embed your finance folks into the business. And I'm not talking just like they work with them here and there and gather information. I'm talking like they're in leadership team meetings. They're part of the team with that area of the business. So much so that they are the first person that the business unit leader might talk to when they're thinking about making a shift in strategy or a change on their team or something like that. That strategic thought partner from the finance team would be the person to scenario model things out, make sure that when they do make these decisions that they're within the forecast or if they're not, they're figuring out how to get it around, get it to work, right? And the if the finance partner is that embedded into the organization, they can work so much more efficiently, right? Because there's not all this constant history that you have to keep updating the finance partner with. If they're just a task taker and just taking in information here and there in bits and pieces, like you constantly have to give them the context. But if they're there day in, day out and part of the team, the context is coming every single day. And so they're able to really make that strategic partnership work. Yeah, no, really interesting. I experienced the same thing in the airlines, that same model. And then again, that's where that 
the operations, understanding the operations, how you can help them. If you don't understand the operations, it's going to be difficult. <laughs> so <laughs> do so well. I want to wrap up here. You, in the beginning, you mentioned the Series E uh, 200 million fundraise. So I'm just curious off the top of your head, like any tips and tricks for finance leaders out there that you went through, probably intensive due diligence, a lot of numbers coming from your finance team or FP&A team, <laughs> you know, yeah. probably different forecasts, metrics, scenarios. So any guidance out there for finance leaders you know, who are going through a, a big fundraise? Prepare early and often. Because, <laughs> yeah, as soon as you started asking the question, the first thing that came to mind was due diligence, right? That's really tough on the team. It's tough to do, especially like in this case, it was the end of the year, but you just never know when it's really going to come to that last minute, right? So it's just being super prepared, even if you think, oh, we have a couple of months or something. Do whatever you can to get your team in a place where you guys can quickly like hit the gas pedal on sending out information. Yeah. And, and what you don't kind want, of... You don't want to hold up the process, right? No, definitely. You don't want to be one yeah. delaying the time frame. So yeah, time frame wise, I mean, was this a couple months, six months? Generally for that size of that raise, you know, what time yeah. frame were, were you, were, did you work with in here? Start to finish, I think it was about eight months. Yeah. So it, I think, and we of course thought it was going to be shorter, right? But one thing after another, it just like continues to push the line. But I, and that's what I mean by like, you really just don't know when people are going to be ready to sign and when they're, when the information is going to be good enough or not good enough, right? So having the ability to really flex on a pretty good and robust model and being able to answer those difficult questions on trends of NR, ARR, all those kinds of things, right? CAC. And so all those things are really critical to just know inside and out. And so if you are a company that is constantly fundraising, like one after another, or that's part of the, the deal, making sure that your data is pretty solid so that you can answer that. And maybe even having one of your staff just always working on that. <laughs> it depends on if you're going quickly and you need to raise a certain amount of money and you're going to go back to back. Having a team or, or a couple of people that are really you know, familiar with the VDR and what information needs to get there and when and keeping it all organized is, is critical. Yeah, you're right. It's someone who is versed in that process, the language, the due diligence list, yeah. the checklist, common requests. What are they trying yeah. to get out of that information request? How are they interpreting it? So yeah. you do build up some experience as those requests come in and think about, yeah, how are they going to use this? How are they going to interpret it? Are we yeah. presenting it in the right format that can be consumed easily? Mm-hmm. So I used my corporate FP&A team, but what happened there was it delayed other processes in the budget planning, right? So if you need to accomplish everything at the same time, just making sure you have the resources in the right place. Yeah, great advice there. So one last question that we like to wrap up here and really Mm -hmm. appreciate you coming on the podcast today. If you had to give one piece of advice to the modern finance leaders out there listening today, what would it be? Probably continuing to bring a human approach to finance making sure that you're taking care of your team as well as your financials. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's super important, especially during this time of 
talent is hot right now, right? So taking care of your talent is super important. It's just going to slow you down if you don't. <laughs> well, that's great. So finance leaders, don't forget the human approach. We, you know, we're crunching the data, forecasting, budgeting. Sometimes we forget about the human approach there. So appreciate that advice. And again, Sarah, thanks for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks so much, Ben. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at stamply.com slash leaders of modern finance. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the most powerful way to process and pay invoices. Stamply is the only accounts payable automation software that centers communication on top of the invoice so that accounts payable collaborates better with approvers, vendors, and anyone involved in purchases to quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com.